Hey guys, Anna Victoria here, and I'm so excited for you to join me on my podcast, Your Best Life. I'm the CEO and founder of the FitBody app, a fitness influencer, and a personal trainer. Every week, I'm going to have a special guest that will share their unique experience and unique story to share how they learned how to live their best life, even if they're still working on it, since we are all a work in progress. I can't wait to help you learn how to create your best life. Welcome back to another episode of Your Best Life Podcast. Anna Victoria here. Hi, guys. And Luca. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Today's guest is Marion Messel, who is an American academic, and she is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She's also a professor of sociology at NYU and a visiting professor of nutritional sciences at Cornell University. She's an author of numerous books, including her latest, Let's Ask Marion, What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health. So I'm super stoked on this episode because I think that the food industry and the political climate and all that stuff is super fascinating. And to be honest, it's really unfortunate. There's a lot in the food industry that needs to be fixed, but kind of can't because of the politics of the food industry. So um, Luca, what do you think about it? I think it's super interesting and I'm very interested in hearing what what she thinks about the difference in the food industry between Europe and the United States and how politics between the two are, you know, actually affecting the food industry. Because we always say food is better, you know, in Europe, Mm -hmm. like they ban more products, it's more authentic, you know, so what's the, Mm -hmm. what's the deal? What is there politics behind it? I would really like to hear from her. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that aside from that, even just, you know, in the United States, how the politics behind the food industry has changed over the years, because there's, there's just been, you know, so much in in the recent decades. And, you know, the food industry is a lot different than, you know, let's say in the 50s. And is that for better or for worse? So here is my conversation with Marion Nessel. Hi, Marion. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing great. I am so excited to chat. I have to say, I think you probably have the longest, most robust list of books you've written, of awards, and it's just a very impressive resume. So do you want to start by sharing a bit about who you are and what you're about? Sure. I mean, my official title is I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University, and I'm now emerita. I retired about three years ago, um, but I'm still, you would never know, uh, and I would never know. I'm still pretty active. I'm teaching a class this fall at NYU online called Food Politics in the Era of the Coronavirus, and um, it's all online. So this is a new experience for me. Now, was that um, course already in place pre-COVID or was this something that, you know, because of COVID, it went online and was created? No, NYU decided um, actually not until June this year that it would ask senior professors to teach two credit courses to undergraduates. And I was asked specifically if I would do one. And I dreamed up the food politics and coronavirus because there's so much going on with the coronavirus and food. And it's such an important development in our understanding of how food systems work. Yeah. And so what what things are you noticing is happening in regards to 
coronavirus with food politics? Well, there are several that are absolutely amazing. The first one was that all of a sudden, meatpacking workers became essential. Who knew? Uh, the, president, the president invoked the Defense Production Act in order to force them to go to work, even though they work at low wages, have very little sick leave, if any, and very bad health care benefits. And tens of thousands of them have gotten sick, and there have been right. several hundred deaths. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. um, then when that happened, uh, meat was being culled and because these animals couldn't get to the packing plants because there weren't enough workers and they were sick and uh, the plants, some plants closed. And so all this food was being destroyed while at the same time, everybody who was out of work was online for handouts at food banks. And so we had this shocking picture of mountains of food being destroyed at the same time that hungry people were waiting online for food. And then there was the school business where all of a sudden everybody realized that schools are not just about teaching kids, they're about feeding kids. And that if kids aren't going to school, they're not being fed. I mean, so that was another huge revelation. And then I think the inequities and unfairness of much of what goes on in our food system was just made very obvious in a way that has never been obvious before. Right. Do you think that there will be policy change that comes from these uh, situations that have come to light as a result of coronavirus? Well, I certainly hope so. And I'm seeing lots of comments about the need for universal school meals. I mean, the Department of Agriculture has been providing universal school meals. Oh boy, do they not want it called that. Uh, <laughs> the uh, emergency meals uh, to children in schools, and they've extended that now to December 31st. I think once everybody realizes how much sense this makes and how no sense is made from all of the uh, problems about having families qualify and deciding who qualifies and who pays what and keeping score and denying children lunches because their parents can't pay for them. I think getting rid of all of that would be just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I'm really happy to see so much discussion of it. Yeah. And now what about the topic of the actual food in schools? So I've seen conversations around, you know, well, they consider ketchup a vegetable or, you know, like pizza, you know, the marinara sauce on a vegetable, things like that. Um, do you think that the status, the quality of food in schools is where it should be right now? Well, I never think it is. And that's because schools don't have enough money to do it right. Um, and until we fund school meals at some reasonable level, then schools are in the position of having to provide lunches for a dollar. Um, you know, I, that's really unreasonable. And we're going to have inflation as a result of all of this. It's going to be very, very hard to do that. It's always been hard. So the battles over school meals are between the groups that the businesses that are in the business of supplying school meals at the lowest possible cost because they still need to make a profit. Um, and feeding kids healthfully. And I hope that there will be some kind of discussion of uh, some sort of balance in all of that. Obviously, nobody can afford to feed kids healthfully 
for a dollar a meal. It's just not possible to do that. Um, and the, uh, you know, the amount of reimbursement that schools get, most of it goes for the staff. And we want the staff to be paid decently, too. Right. So which is another thing that the coronavirus pandemic has shown is how poorly these workers who are suddenly deemed essential food system workers, meatpacking workers, slaughterhouse workers, farm workers, grocery store workers. All of a sudden, they're essential for making our society work. Let's at least pay them decently. Right, right. And on the note of the status of food in the school system, aside from coronavirus and all the conversations that have come to light as a result of it, do you feel like there have been notable positive changes in the school systems in the past few years? Like, were we were things improving or do you think that things have just continued to get worse and worse? Oh, I think there was a huge improvement with the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010, was that when it was? Uh, you know, when Michelle Obama had made school food one of her areas of focus, um, the law was passed and it was an enormous improvement of the quality of foods. It still has a long way to go. And even though uh, Congress cut back on some of these things. So there was some backtracking, like on the things that you mentioned. Um, it's still better than it was. But school, schools need a decent amount of money to provide healthy food for kids. And uh, the school meals need to be universal. And until we have that, there are going to be real problems. Well, let's take a step back a bit and talk more about you and how you got started in this industry. So was nutrition something that growing up you were always passionate about or how, how did that become a passion? Oh, I loved food. I just loved to eat. And I mean, food was just so wonderful. There were so many different kinds of it and they were all delicious. Um, I really loved food and I wanted to go to, to college and study food. So a friend of my mother suggested, you love food, you should go study it. But the options were very limited. Um, you could be, you could study agriculture. But I was a city girl. I didn't understand anything about agriculture yeah. until much, much later. Um, and so the only choice was dietetics. And I went to University of California, Berkeley as a dietetics major and lasted about one day. <laughs> I was, oh my of, I was out of there so fast um, because we were, it was home economics and we were expected uh -huh. to take very serious science courses. And I found the science courses much more interesting and ended up getting my undergraduate degree in science and then going on and getting a doctorate in molecular biology. And I didn't really get back to it until I was given, in my first teaching job, I was given a nutrition course to teach. You will teach nutrition this fall. Um, and I, didn't, I didn't know anything about it, but I was really curious and just couldn't wait to start preparing that class. And I have to say, I describe it as falling in love. I've never looked back. Amazing. And you are an authority in what's called food studies. What, what does that mean? How do you define that field? Well, food studies was a field that we invented at NYU in 1996, basically to create the field that I would have majored in if it had existed when I went to college. I mean, in a sense, we were creating the program that we all wanted. And it started out with a big focus on food and culture. What is the role of food in 
um, American and international culture, and then it's expanded to uh, encompass food systems, which is the buzzword that's used to describe everything that happens to a food from the time it's produced, transported, sold, prepared, eaten and wasted. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that you really can't understand why people eat the way they do if you don't understand the agricultural system. And you can't really understand the agricultural system unless you understand the economic, social, and political context in which food is consumed. And you have to think about all these things at once. And so this is the way I think about it. And it's a pretty terrific program. We were the first food studies program in 1996. I think there are now 50 or 60 of them throughout the country wow. and throughout the world. So it's a, an idea that has stuck. And the programs are very different in all of those different places, depending on who the faculty, uh, mm -hmm. who the faculty are. But they're all encouraging students who are interested in food to put that food in a social, economic, and political context. And I think that's great. It's really exciting. Yeah. Well, and I, I love what you pointed out about you have to understand the political climate. And that's actually really what I, I want to hear from you. So in your book, um, Unsavory Truth, uh, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, it examines how the food industry manipulates nutrition science. And in the last decade or two, there have been renewed political attacks on science and scientists as credible sources of information. So in your opinion, what's the conversation that we, the people you know, of the United States need to be having about the role of science in our society in regards to the food industry? Well, I think we need to pay attention to science. Science is a way of looking at the world that's empirically based. It's experimentally based. You have a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you see whether your hypothesis is correct or not. It's fact-based, or it's supposed to be fact-based, and to the extent that it is fact-based, it's very powerful because it helps you understand the world in which you live. What concerns me about food industry funding of nutrition research is that it's not about fact-finding, it's about marketing. It's about getting results that you can use in marketing your products, and I think that's a corruption of science. Um, and my book, Unsavory Truth, discusses that in enormous detail. Most of the evidence on industry funding of research comes from the cigarette industry, the chemical industry, or the pharmaceutical drug industry. Interest in food industry funding of research is relatively recent. And fortunately, there's more of that happening. Um, you know, I hit onto it fairly early, but lots of other people have taken up that challenge and are doing very close examinations with the results across the board showing that industry-funded research almost always comes out with results that favor the sponsor's marketing interest. Um, and that the influence, what's so odd about it is that the influence is unconscious the people who are doing the research don't intend to be influenced. They're not really sold out. It's, it occurs at some kind of subconscious level, so they deny that it has any influence on them, even though there is vast amounts of research now that demonstrates this connection between funding, influence, and results. So that's what that book is about. 
Yeah, and so you uh, you spoke about uh, Coca Cola and how they in particular have manipulated research for their own benefits. Um, and I listened to an interview that you did a few years ago um, that was talking about uh, the beverage industry and how they are fighting the um, tax being put on soda. So um, and also just in general the um, funding that comes from food industries and that they had vowed at the time that they were no longer going to be, you know, uh, having that conflict of interest. Um, since that was three years ago, do you feel like they have kept up, uh, they've honored their promise, or is that still an issue? Well, at, at first they did exactly what they said they were going to do, and I was very impressed. Um, they said they were going to be completely com transparent about the community organizations, the research organizations, and the individual researchers that they funded, and they would post on their website lists of everybody they funded and how much they were giving them and they did that and they did that for several years they said they would renew it and they would update it every six months they did that and now they've stopped now if you want to get that information you have to dig really deep into the website it's still mm. there but not to the same extent they used to publish running tallies they're not doing that anymore um, but it looks to me like they're not funding individual research projects the way they used to. I mean, they were hugely embarrassed by uh, the revelations that they were funding a group that um, promoted exercise as the solution to obesity uh, without mentioning that their work was funded by Coca-Cola. And that revelation, which was on the front page of the New York Times, hugely embarrassed the company. And they did all the right things right afterwards, but it looks to me like there's been a lot of backsliding. Um, and I'm not seeing Coca-Cola funded research anymore uh, to the extent that, you know, there's some of it that was funded earlier that's still coming out, but more and more and more analyses of uh, what Coca-Cola did are coming out. So there are papers coming out all the time. Um, there were, um, emails that came out as a result of Freedom of Information Act requests. And those emails have been endlessly mined for information about what the company was thinking and how it was manipulating the research, the researchers, um, and the environment. But I'm not sure they're doing that much anymore. They have enough trouble now. What would you say are the main troubles that they're facing right now? Well, nobody's drinking sweetened beverages, and at least in the United States. Uh, sales of sugar-sweetened beverages have gone down by a third since uh, the year 2000. They go down every year. There are tax initiatives all over the world, and those tax initiatives are passing because everybody needs revenue, and everybody is looking at sugar-sweetened beverages as a source of revenue that they can use for whatever the purposes are. So the company is having to sell a variety of other beverages, different kinds of waters, um, mm -hmm. flavored waters, sugar waters, I mean, all kinds of things. Um, and they don't sell as well as, mm -hmm. as a Coca-Cola did. So profits are going down. That's not good for business. Stop, yeah. you just don't like that. Right. Yeah, I actually was going to say I noticed that I was uh, sent a product that was a health food or like a health healthier alternative to like a flavored drink. 
And when I looked it up, I realized that they were owned by, I can't remember if it was Pepsi or Coca-Cola or one. And I thought like, okay, so this is what they're doing now. They're trying to tap into the other industries, the other drink industries, you know, that are somewhat profitable or at least to see if it it would be a, you know, replacement. So is that something that you see that they're doing? Absolutely. Coca-Cola bought vitamin water. And part Mm -hmm. of the strategy here is we're giving consumers a choice. We're not forcing you to drink our sugariest beverages. You have a choice. It's up to you. So in a sense, it's blaming what's happening on personal responsibility. What you need to do is to look at the advertising budgets that are connected with each of those products. And you see that the advertising budget for the classic sugary beverages is much greater than for these other things um, because that's if they're more profitable. You know, I will never understand why sugar-sweetened beverages are more profitable than plain water, which they, also, with you. <laughs> which they also sell, but they claim it's more profitable. So, um, you know, I take their word for it. That's their yeah. business. Um, so, you know, most of the research that I'm seeing funded by industry is funded by healthy foods blueberries, pomegranates, uh, pecans, whatever the food is, because they're trying to get market share. Interesting. And that is just who, what, who are those companies that are funding them? Just blueberry? Trade associations. It's usually trade associations. So trade associations for various kinds of foods fund research that will demonstrate that that food has some health benefit, and then they can market it as a superfood. Got it. Okay. A marketing term. It is not a term. It's a marketing term. Wow. That, I mean, I I see it all the time, you know, these marketing of, you know, superfoods, but I I never thought that, you know, a whole natural food, you know, source could be used as another kind of like, I don't want to say weaponized, but like using it as something that could be, you know, profited on through marketing and and all those products. But I mean, of of course it can. Yeah. The blueberry growers would rather that you ate blueberries instead of raspberries, strawberries, or any other kind of berry. Uh, So it's just about market share. I think it confuses the public and it makes things very difficult. Right. Well, that's true because like you said, like, you know, if they're saying that it's a superfood and people believe that it's going to, you know, give them all these, you know, let's say health superpowers or whatever, you know, and that's not necessarily true. But I wonder, would you say that you are more forgiving to that type of marketing because it is, you know, a healthier food item than the marketing that like Coca-Cola and those types of companies do? No, I think that neither of them should do it. Um, I think it confuses the public. It distorts the research. It absolutely, it, it corrupts the research. Uh, to put it bluntly, and it shouldn't be done. It's about marketing. It's not about right. science. Um, it's It uses that kind of research. Uh, it has a scientific aura, but it's really not about science. It's really about marketing, and yeah. it should be labeled as such. I think it's enormously confusing, and I wish that I'm on, a, I'm on somewhat of a crusade to try to get reporters whenever they're writing about studies like that, to please tell us who paid for it. I don't understand how that isn't the standard right now anyways. I mean, it's if they're writing about something and there's an angle, I mean, even if you're on Instagram and you got paid to share about a product, you have to now disclose that you are paid 
to share about that product. It would be nice. Uh, the journals certainly require it. Yeah. Whether they enforce it is another matter. Right. Uh, but there isn't anything that says that reporters have to. I wish they would. And I've had endless correspondence with the editors of newsletters that I get information from that, um, you know, about that issue. And I think they've gotten better. So I, I'm seeing some progress on that, but I, it's not universal. So a lot of people have likened the current food industry to the previous tobacco industry. Mm -hmm. um, what are the similarities that you uh, have seen in the way that they have funded research and have really fought against a lot of the regulations in uh, bringing the risks to light? You know, let me start first with the differences because food is not tobacco. Tobacco is one product with one message don't smoke. Um, food is obviously much more complicated. It's eat this instead of that, or eat less in general if you're worried about weight. Um, it's more complicated, but the food industry has picked up what's called the playbook of the tobacco industry line by line. And that playbook was, first of all, to cast doubt on the research. The first thing that you want to do if there's research that shows that your product is harmful is to cast doubt on it. And the soda industry did that right from the beginning, as I wrote about in my book, Soda Politics. The first thing they did was to fund research that would show that exercise is more important than what you eat or drink, um, that anybody who suggests that sugar-sweetened beverages are bad for health is doing research that's so badly done you don't have to pay any attention to it, um, and that really these products are benign. And so that's following the tobacco industry playbook. Other elements of that playbook are to get scientists to do the kind of research that you want to try to convince the public that what they eat is a matter of personal responsibility. And anybody who tells you anything different is pushing for a nanny state, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And that's been a very successful technique for confusing the public about cigarettes, which did for about 50 years. And I think it's very successfully confusing the public about what a healthy diet is, because we know what a healthy diet is. And it doesn't include a lot of junk food. Right. And, you know, even in my experience being in the fitness industry, um, when I first started my my journey into learning all about, you know, how to even eat healthy, because as an American growing up, I I really didn't know. I ate McDonald's three times a day growing up and I loved it, you know. But as I got older and started having health problems, of course, um, you know, and I needed to start researching about eating healthy um, at the time, everything was about like eating clean and eating non-processed foods. And that did make sense to me. This was about eight years ago now. And the the po most popular messaging now in the industry um, is not so much about eating clean. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say going against that, but it's a lot of it is saying, well, a soda a day won't won't hurt you. You know, it's about moderation and, you know, having fast food one, two times a week won't hurt you. It's about moderation, which I agree. Um, but what do you think about, is, is there an amount of junk food that is okay that we should incorporate into our diet to have balance? Or do you think that it should be about whole natural clean foods? Well, I'm greatly in favor of moderation if anybody could do it. 
<laughs> but people right. can't do it. You know, yeah. if you're somebody who can do moderation and I'm somebody who can do moderation, I think right. moderation is fine. But I people tell me that they can't eat just one. You know, mm -hmm. And of course, the food companies have done everything they can to produce foods that you can't just eat one of. If it's in front of you, you just keep eating it. Um, you know, there was a really, really important study done last year at the National mm -hmm. Institutes of Health that, um, and by the way, the buzzword now is ultra-processed for highly processed junk foods. It has, ultra processed has a specific meaning. It's foods that are industrially produced that you can't make in your home kitchen that have all kinds of ingredients that aren't available in supermarkets uh, that are highly advertised and extremely profitable. And there's now a huge amount of evidence, really good evidence that they're not good for your health. Mm -hmm. um, so this particular study was a totally controlled study done in a metabolic ward where people were locked up in a metabolic ward for a month. And for two weeks, they were fed a totally ultra processed diet. And for two weeks, they were fed a totally non ultra processed diet. Um, in one order or the other. And the, the participants in the study ranked the diets as equally palatable. So they tasted just as good. They couldn't tell which one was really which um, because they were very well designed. They weren't concerned about that. They were just told they could eat as much as they wanted of either one. When they were on the ultra processed diet, they ate 500 calories a day more than they did when they, on average, than when they were on the relatively unprocessed diet. And because they were eating 500 calories a day more, they gained weight, right. no surprise. And so there's something about these foods that encourages people to eat more. And they were completely unaware of eating more. They had no idea they were taking in more calories. Uh, the only difference that the investigators were able to find was that they ate the ultra-processed diet a little bit faster, hmm. um, but not enough to account for the difference in calories or in weight. So all we know at this point is that ultra-processed foods make people want to eat them. Um, the companies put a huge amount of research into making them yummy. That's right. the whole mm -hmm. And making, not only making them you like them, but making you want to buy them over and over and over mm -hmm. again and eat them in bigger and bigger quantities. So I don't, I think that's a sufficient explanation for why people right. gained weight when these products started to be made, you know, very high in salt, sugar, and fat and other things that we just love to eat. And I think faced with this kind of thing, most people find resisting it very difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard to fight. This kind of thing. If you've got a bag of potato chips in front of you, you're going to eat everything mm -hmm. that's in the bag, no matter how big the bag is. If you've got a soft drink in front of you, you're going to drink it no matter how big it is. And if I had one thing, <laughs> one concept that I could convey to absolutely everybody, it would be that larger portions have more calories. Right. Uh, duh. Yeah. <laughs> that, that people don't realize it. So. Yeah. 
I actually was surprised that I lived abroad for a few years. My husband is from Italy, so I lived there with him. Their food industry is, is much different than ours. Mm-hmm. And when I, I remember when I moved back, a lot had changed in the United States. I was gone for about four years. And I went to, I think it was Chevy's or Cheesecake Factory or somewhere. And when I saw the calories, they, they when I had lived here prior, they didn't list the calories on the menu. And then when I came back, they did. 2000 calories for one dish. (laughs) It really truly shocked me. Like, of course, I know that it's not a healthy meal that I should be eating every day. But like, oh, my goodness, the amount of calories that people I think, you know, me, someone that is aware of what I eat and how food makes me feel. I, I would say the general public isn't, you know, like they're they're not as conscious of those things. So do you think that putting calories on the menus was a good move and something that has resulted in positive impacts for the general public? Well, it was supposed to do two things. It was supposed to educate the public about calories and be accompanied with Mm -hmm. a statement that most people need 2,000 or 2,500 calories a day. And so if you're eating something that's 2,000 calories, you've done your- In one meal. You've done your day's calories. It was also supposed to encourage the food industry to produce foods with fewer calories. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly calorie labeling, which came into New York City in 2008. Um, so I lived in New York City or live in New York City and uh, it had a big effect on me. I would go into a store and say, that has 800 calories? Right. I'm not going to eat that. I'll eat half of it. And even I wouldn't have realized yeah. That a muffin right. would be 800 calories, um, even though it's a really big muffin. Um, <laughs> so it had a big effect on me, but I'm not exactly the core person that this, in, that this educational effort is aimed at. And most of the studies show that it doesn't change the caloric intake of people who go into places that have calorie labeling, which are fast food places to begin with. I'm right. not a core customer for fast food places. <laughs> Um, but for people who are, uh, usually they're not so interested in calories. If they were, they'd be eating somewhere else. Right. But what they're interested in, maybe because they don't have any money and because they love the taste of the food, what they're interested in is getting as much food as they can for as little money as possible without thinking about the consequences of what that might do. Um, You know, you asked if it's okay to go to these places. When my kids were young, and we're talking a very long time ago, (laughs) um, you know, I would take them to McDonald's on their birthdays. It was a really big deal. McDonald's had wonderful birthday parties for kids. Right, I remember. And they didn't cost very much, and the kids loved them. The kids love them, and once a year on your birthday seems just fine me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't look back on that and thinking that I was a bad mother for doing that. I was a good mother for doing that. It was fun. Right. Um, yeah. And certainly very easy to do. It's the three times a day that you describe. Right. That's a problem. So that's where moderation comes into it. And everybody wants a prescription. What's okay to eat? And it's hard to do that unless you know everything else that somebody's eating. If you eat a generally healthy diet and I'm totally convinced that we know exactly what a generally healthy diet is. It's one that is largely, but not necessarily exclusively, based on plant foods, vegetables, grains, fruits, etc., eaten in quantities that don't make you gain weight 
and that avoids a lot of junk food or ultra processed food as we're now um, calling it. That accounts for 99% of dietary advice. And if you follow that, you don't have to worry about what you eat. Right. The problem is it's really hard to follow that. Yeah. And you have to have money to do it. Right. Absolutely. In your most recent book, Let's Ask Marion What You Need to Know About the Politics of Food, Nutrition, and Health, um, you've written several books. So what is, uh, what is the idea behind this one? What's the main takeaway message from it? From this book? This book is, I have to show it to you. I think it's so yeah. cute. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. It's this little tiny thing. <laughs> it's four by six. It's absolutely minute um, and oh. hardly weighs a thing. And it's a Q&A book. I got my friend Carrie Truman to ask questions and I wrote short essays um, in response. And it's kind of a summary of my views of food and food politics. Uh, my writing, you know, I, it's a very unusual book for me. For one thing, it's <laughs> I write great big fat books with 500 pages and hundreds and hundreds of references. And this is a teeny little thing that can be read very quickly. Um, and it's kind of a summary and in a Q&A format, easy to read. And it's um, so the kinds of, it summarizes what I've been talking about with you doesn't really have a single bottom line, except that we know what a healthy diet is. It's just hard to eat. So try to figure out how to eat it. Right. And would you say that, that this book is the best place for people to start that are needing almost an intro into the world of food, health, and politics? Or um, is there something else that you would refer them to? Well, I would certainly hope that people who were mildly interested would, I mean, would pick this up as a gateway. And then if they're really interested, they can read one of the 500 yeah, page books. Right. Well, <laughs> I, I have to say, I love the Q&A format. I think that's genius. And it's something that is very digestible for people that are, whether they're new to the industry or not, um, just, you know, a, a much more kind of approachable way for people who might be a little um, overwhelmed and intimidated by, you know, the topic at hand. So um, with that being said, was there any question in the book that was the hardest for you to answer and i would say to summarize and to answer in a more concise way because i'm sure most questions in this field you know you could write a, an entire thesis on i find short essays very hard to write you know i write a daily blog at foodpolitics.com but blogs are not essays Mm -hmm. you know, blogs are there to put the information out there in the, in the quickest possible way and in the most readable possible way, using words rather than phrases and phrases rather than paragraphs, um, because you want people to read it and to be able to read it very quickly. Um, and I find short essays hard to write. They were all hard to do. And yeah. when um, the press asked me to do a small, short summary of my thinking about food politics, I just couldn't figure out a way to do it until I hit on the idea of getting Carrie, who I'd worked with about 10 years ago, um, and who used to ask me questions that I just loved answering, if she would mind doing it again. And her questions are about 100, 150 words. I mean, they're not three-word questions. They're, right. they're mini essays in themselves. And it gave me something to push back against. But they were all hard to write. And the ones that were hardest to write, I think, were the ones about personal diets. Mm -hmm. um, 
there are 18 questions and six are about personal diets, six are about community food politics, and six are about international food politics. And I think the personal ones are the hardest because there's so much context that you have to talk about. It's really okay for you to go to McDonald's once a year, Um, but then it raises the question about what about once a week or once a day? And then that gets really complicated because then you're talking about what else is somebody eating and mm-hmm. um, what else is the lifestyle and are you physically active and are you drinking or are you taking drugs? What else are you doing? Right. It gets really complicated when you're talking about individual diets um, because there are so many different ways to put together a healthy diet. Um, you know, there's an infinite, people do it all over the world in different ways. And there's no one way to do it. Lots and lots and lots of diets meet the the kinds of, if there are rules about largely plant-based, not too much, you can do a lot of things within that. Uh, so I find that very hard to talk about without getting bogged down in all of right. the You know, I'm not very prescriptive or I try not to be very prescriptive because I want people to enjoy food right, absolutely. the way I do. And so I try not to be too prescriptive and there's only one way to do it. No, there are lots of ways to do it and you have to find the way that works for you. I reached out to my followers and I shared that I was going to be speaking with someone about this topic of food politics and what questions they had for you. And I got several questions on food politics uh, in Europe and how that compares to the United States and specifically on regulations. Mm -hmm. And as someone who lived in Europe for a few years, I experienced firsthand the difference. And so specifically what I would like to know is, um, and some of my followers would like to know is, why are there so many banned ingredients and substances that are allowed in the United States but banned abroad? Politics couldn't be easier. This has to do with financing. It has to do with things that seem very remote from what you buy at the supermarket. It has to do with election campaign laws where corporations can give money to legislators and then legislators pay them back by not passing laws that regulate them in any way. Uh, It has to do with the way Wall Street evaluates corporations. Um, Wall Street values corporations by making higher immediate returns on profits. The most important thing that corporations do is to provide uh, profits for shareholders. Values about people's health or the health of the environment are not to enter into that. There's been some talk about trying to change that in recent years, but I'm not seeing signs of action following that talk. I hope there will be, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, So it has to do with politics. Anytime uh, something comes up about trying to regulate a food product, um, the industry goes to town with its lobbying. And the example that just leaps to mind is the meat industry's role in the dietary guidelines in 2015, when the dietary guidelines advisory committee wanted to talk about the need to reduce meat intake, not only because of health, but also because of the effect of meat production on greenhouse gas emissions and sustainability. And the meat industry went to Congress and got the agricultural, I mean, I just can't get over this. They got the Agricultural Appropriations Committee to include a paragraph in the Agricultural Appropriations Act 
telling this, directing the Secretary of Agriculture to absolutely forbid any kind of mention of the word sustainability in the dietary guidelines. Wow. That's pretty um, heavy duty lobbying. And the Secretary of Agriculture went out and said, we're not going to say anything about sustainability in the dietary guidelines. Certainly not. And they didn't. Wow. So, I mean, that's how the system works. Right. And in Europe, um, I mean, I only have some experience understanding of the Italian uh, political system, which is very corrupt. I don't know about the rest of Europe, but um, what is the difference between the lobbying here in the United States and in Europe? They Is it other industries that are being funded? It's not necessarily the food or that have this going on? It, it, it's a different culture. It's a completely yeah. different culture. There's um, there's a culture of, well, first of all, the Italian food culture traditionally mm-hmm. was very, very different than the American right. food culture. Um, and there's a strong feeling of wanting to retain that to the extent it's possible in the face of the influx of fast food. And the um, you know obesity rates are lower and the um, school lunches are universal and better. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are lots of ways in which social issues are more important than individual corporate issues. And then you have the whole European Union imposed on top of that, which has regulations that are worked out with the member nations. There's much more focus on what's good for society Right. Then right. just what's good for individuals. Where mm-hmm. here the culture is look out for yourself and you know, don't look out for other people. I wish we had much more looking out for other people. I think we really need that. And that's another thing that the pandemic really showed up. Right. Huge inequalities and social injustices in the food system that were exposed by this. So I hope we can fix it. Yeah, and I just want to add just a funny little, uh, you know, note that my husband, so since he's born and raised from Rome, um, when he and I have talked about the differences in the food industries, he said, like, you know, hey, we we get out of school and for lunch and we go home to eat. You know, you don't go to like McDonald's or you don't go out to a fast food place. So it, and it's, it's just very much ingrained in their culture. Their food culture, like you said, is so much different. Um, and that's not something that we can really incorporate here. It's not as realistic, you know, it's uh, for you know several different reasons. Um, but is there something that you think that we can do to kind of marry those two and in a way, uh, yeah, incorporate that into American food culture? Well, the most important thing that we have to do is make sure that people have enough to eat. Yeah. Um, and enough of healthy foods to eat. It would be better. I wish everybody could see that it would be better for society as a whole if everybody in our society were healthier. Right. We wouldn't be worried. We wouldn't be as worried about health care costs. We wouldn't have to worry that so many people uh, have type 2 diabetes. We wouldn't, I mean, the, there would be less of that and it would be good for everybody. And so I'm for considering a universal basic income or some kind of policy that makes it possible for people to consume healthy diets. Because until people have enough money to be buying food that is good for them. They're, they're not going to be able to do it even if they want to. 
Right. Can I actually ask a question? This might be a little controversial, but um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Hayes movement. So it's healthy at every size. And the yes. idea, mm-hmm. yeah, is that, you know, regardless of someone being obese or not, that there can people can be healthy at, you know, any size. Um, how do you feel about that movement? Is that something you agree with? Well, I certainly agree with it to a point, but mm-hmm. there, I, I think the science is very clear that being overweight raises the risk for particularly type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and a whole lot of other things. Now, risk is a very difficult concept to understand because it's a question of probability. It's not a certainty. Just because you're overweight doesn't mean you're going to get type 2 diabetes. But if you look at people with type 2 diabetes, 90% of them are overweight or 85%. I mean, some huge percentage of them are overweight, not everybody. Um, so it's, it's a question of risk and probability. And I think the evidence is very clear that being overweight raises risk. Now, there are plenty of overweight people who are perfectly healthy. More power to them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Stay that way. You know, stay that yeah. way. Uh, eat healthfully. Be physically active. Enjoy your life. But to deny that uh, the question of risk seems well, not to make much sense to me. Right. You know, I think what that movement comes out of is the terrible, terrible way in which overweight people are treated in our society right. and the stigma attached to it and the sense that it's your choice. You're, if you're overweight, it's your personal choice. If you chose to be thinner, you would be thinner. Oh, I, how I wish that were true. Right, right. You know, or that you could wave a magic wand. And, the, uh, you know, and then that completely denies the way in which our food marketing culture does everything that it possibly can do to get people to eat more of the wrong kind of foods for them. And you know, without taking the environment into consideration, um, you're blaming you know, and blaming the victim in a way. I, I, I don't know. It seems very unfair to me. Yeah. And how about, you mentioned a plant-based diet. So several questions I got from my followers and community were to get your thoughts on the dairy industry and the meat industry and in regards to lobbying and uh, whether it really should be a part of a standard healthy, you know, right. a healthy American <laughs> diet, not the standard American diet. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on on dairy and, and meat? Oh, I feel so sorry for the dairy industry these days, uh, particularly for small dairy farmers. Um, you know, I wish there were something. I mean, I happen to like dairy products, um, yeah. so and I'm not a vegan. The um, and I really do follow my own advice: eat food. You know, eat food mostly plants, not too much. Michael Pollan's famous seven words. Um, the dairy industry is really suffering now because it's become industrialized and small farmers are in a real disadvantage in all of this. And I feel really, really sorry about what is happening with them. And I wish we had policies that would protect small dairy farms. Um, The meat industry has gotten too big and too powerful. And most meat is industrially produced and there are all kinds Mm -hmm. of problems with that. The idea that dairy farms and meat producing facilities are allowed to produce the amount of animal waste that they do and that they don't have to clean it up. It seems absolutely shocking to me that they're allowed to just leave that stuff around in the environment. I've 
been in places where I'm two miles away from a pig farm. And believe me, you know there's a pig farm in the neighborhood. Uh, They shouldn't be allowed to do that. And there are laws that protect the public against that kind of thing, but those laws are not enforced. Um, From a health standpoint, you don't need either one. There are plenty of ways of eating a healthy diet and just eating plant foods. Um, If you do want to eat them, small amounts are okay. Moderation and all fit. Right. <laughs> you can figure out what moderation means and do something about it. So I'm not in the category that says that dairy po- foods are poison. I don't think they are. I don't think that meat is poison. I do think that people would be much healthier if they ate less meat, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that eating less meat would be better for the environment and for human health. What does less mean? It depends on how much you're eating already. Right, right. And now that has been one of my main questions as someone, you know, who is married to someone from Europe and lived there, that when I was there, I I witnessed that people consume just as much, you know, dairy and meat, but it seems like they have less health problems. And so what I've always wondered is, is it the industry here? Is it how those products are farmed and manufactured and that they're industrialized? Or is it the food themselves? Uh, what's your take on that? Well, it may be neither. It may have to do entirely with what else they're doing and what else they're eating. And, you know, I don't know how to answer that without knowing a lot more about, it seemed to me that portion sizes were much smaller in Italy. I mean, in the times that I've been in Italy, if people are eating um, dairy foods or meat, the portions are smaller. They're not eating as much. I I don't see them eating as much. And they're not eating meat three times a day. They're not eating dairy foods necessarily three times a day. Although I did see gelato places, absolutely. Uh, So I I think the food culture is different. And what we need to do is to to have a healthier food culture. I don't know how we get it. I think lots of people are trying. Um, One of the benefits, if there are any benefits of the coronavirus pandemic, is that more people are cooking at home. Right. Um, And that's making, I think, for a lot of people, that's healthier. Yeah. Well, I have two more questions for you. So one is uh, the name of the podcast is Your Best Life, which the main message I want to drive home is that there's no such thing as one best life. We all have different priorities and different things that help us live our own best life. So if there's an experience or a message that you would like to share that has allowed you to live your best life, what would that be? Well, I follow my own advice. I think it works. It works for me. I would hope that it would work for other people. I mean, I found out a way that works for me. Everybody has to find out a way that works for them. And I can't write a prescription for that. I can just say that I would never advise anybody to eat anything that I wouldn't eat or to eat in a way that I wouldn't eat. And I do think that eat food, not too much, mostly plants, really takes care of it. Amazing. And my last question um, is where my audience can find and follow you and where they can get your most recent book. Well, they can follow me on foodpolitics.com. I write a blog usually five times a week, Monday through Friday. Um, I occasionally miss a day, but not very often. (laughs) Um, I'm also on Twitter at Marion Nestle. So foodpolitics.com at Marion Nestle. Um, And the book, I don't know. Any bookstore, (laughs) online, lots of places to get it. Um, I hope it's readily available. And it's tiny and it doesn't cost very much. 
for those listening, like she said, it's a small, cute, red little book. So it uh, should be pretty easy to spot. Um, thank you so much. This was so informative. There were a million other questions I could have asked and we could have gone on for hours and hours, but um, I so appreciate your time. This was a great honor um, and I hope you are staying safe and healthy out there. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right, that was my conversation with Marion Nessel. Luca, what did you think? That was super interesting. A very great insight on food and politics. And, mm-hmm. you know, who would have known that there was there are so much intertwined? Intertwined? Is that even a word? Intertwined. Intertwined. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> just, just missing one, one letter. Um, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I always... I, okay. I can't say I always knew, but I, as of late, you know, it's something that I was very aware of, but I didn't really know the intricacies or, you know, kind of what went into all of it. Um, so aside from the political side of it, that is really fascinating. One thing that I appreciate that she said that is really important to acknowledge is the topic, the conversation regarding dairy and meat, because a lot of people want to know, they want it to be very black and white. Do we eat it or don't we eat it? And it's not that easy. You know, there, there's so much more that goes into it. Like she said, like, well, what else are you eating and how much of it? And what I think is really great that she said is that it's not that you need it. You can, you can have a healthy diet without those things, but it's also not poison. You know, like you also well, can yeah. eat it and be healthy, yeah, but sure. you know, in moderation and, but there's so many other factors at play here. Like what else are you eating? Kind of like the same conversation that, you know, in the points that she made regarding the differences of eating in Europe. Well, they are, what else are they eating? It's not so easy. And I think that's that- they're doing, that's how they're eating, right. The overall right. lifestyle, you know, absolutely, yeah. Right, and I think that that's, it, unfortunately that's just what makes it so hard is everyone wants, they want a prescription, you know, they want to know exactly what to do and what to eat and a black and white answer. And that's just not possible. And I think that it's people almost, uh, I don't, I'm going to think out loud for a minute here. I'm not sure how, how I totally feel about this, but I feel like people almost need to lo- stop looking to others for answers of how they should live their life and like what balances or what's moderation, because that's an individual kind of uh, answer, you know, except for, of course, listen to the experts, you know, listen to researchers. But in terms of, you know, someone telling you, well, you know, how many times can you eat this a month and still be healthy? But that that is an individual kind of answer. Does that make sense? It's a personal choice. (laughs) I think it's a personal choice. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that people should, you know, be more uh, in tune with making their own personal decisions and and having accountability for that. So for sure. And also the other part where how much really corporations are lobbying in the food industry and there's so much, you right. know, they really like influence um, legislations. Right. Well, and see, and that's the other part of the conversation that makes actually kind of almost, I want to contradict what I just said a bit, because if people are, are unknowingly being influenced by all the lobbying and all the marketing, and they don't know, you know, that there's 2000 calories in one meal at Cheesecake Factory or, you know, all those other things, then that, that's, that's kind of where it makes it a little bit difficult to say, you know, just, you know, be accountable for your, for your actions and what you're eating. Um, it's definitely not a black and white topic. Um, but I, I think that she had so many great points and we could 
oh man, I could have asked her a million more questions in a million more different directions. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I would love to hear what you think about this topic. If you have um, experienced anything similar, maybe you live in Europe and your experience with food culture is different than, um, or if you live in the United States and how you feel that you've been impacted by it. Um, let us know in the Facebook group or on Instagram and we will talk to you guys next time. Bye. And that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to share with a friend, spread the word and help us grow our tribe. Please rate and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes each week. You can also follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group, both under the same name, Your Best Life Podcast, to keep the conversation going. You can also send me an email at yourbestlifepodcast at gmail.com and you just might be featured in a future episode. Your Best Life is a Gallery Media Group original production.